are in a series looking at the last week of Jesus' life. If you know, we are actually headed in to Easter Sunday, or probably better known as Resurrection Sunday. So we're taking the, uh, the last week of Jesus' life and just slowly walking through uh, each and every day as we head into Resurrection Sunday. So we started last week, and this week we're going to explore Monday, all that occurs for him on Monday. Now, you will find if you've tracked Jesus' last week of his life, if you've done that activity, especially with the last week of his life, the actual last week, uh, we oftentimes refer to Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, you know, some days are full of a lot more activities than other days. And so as we come into those longer days, uh, I'll do some, a bit summary, but just kind of keying in on what Jesus is doing. We want to examine him. We want to look at him. We want to see what he is doing in these last few moments. And so last week we began... Um, what you may find that the last week of Jesus' life is marked with many emotions. But the most consistent, or maybe surprising for some of you, is rejection. Now, I'll admit, last week we saw a joyous reception of Jesus, right? You know, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Uh, we saw this joyous entrance into Jerusalem, but we concluded, well, joyous for the most part, right? There were, and there were uh, clear, right declarations about his person, right? Messiah, prophet, king, and there were clear declarations about his work. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Wrapped up in his person and work was their salvation, and that was being declared as he entered into town. But what we did see is the beginning, or we could maybe say hints, that his person and his work would ruffle a few <laughs> in the wrong way. He is indeed a prophet, a prophet telling the truth, telling the truth about God, and as we will see, telling the truth about themselves and ourselves. He is indeed from Nazareth. And yes, he indeed will be despised and rejected. We saw the beginning hints of those realities. And now the next two weeks will be our rising tension, if you will, of the last week of Jesus' life. You see, what unfolds in these next couple of weeks together is prophet-like teaching and confrontation. But I don't want us to miss there are also plenty of invitations to repent and believe. In the midst of this very clear teaching about their current heart is also very clear teaching of grace and mercy found in repentance, found in faith in Jesus. Oh, there's going to be some preaching happening. Oh, there's going to be confrontation. But there's clarity on what they should do with it. So this morning, there are two scenes that we're going to look at. Now, each of these scenes, they have events occur in them. But what is a, a, an incredible display of Jesus' abilities to teach 
out of all of these events, it'll be followed by teaching. And some of the teaching is fairly direct. So we've got two big scenes that occur. Each of those scenes have events that happen, and then Jesus uses the opportunity to teach. That's what we got this morning. And I think you'll be encouraged, or maybe I shall say you'll be challenged <laughs> this morning. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 12 through 22. We'll have it up on the screen for you, or follow along in your Bible as well. So remember, two scenes, events, and teaching, okay? Verse 12 of chapter 21 of Matthew. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. There's our first scene. Here's our second scene. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, no kidding, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. The first scene finds Jesus in the temple. A common thing when you visit a town to go to the temple, and Jesus does that. And inside the temple, there's two things that occur. There's some flipping of tables of the money changers, and there's some healing. Now, each of these events, as you anticipate, evoke responses from those there, and it evokes a teaching from Jesus. Now, let's start with the money changers. You probably have read this story, probably have uh, thought about it, and probably even kind of chuckle as you read this story. Now, for some of you, you probably really like this story. Oh, yeah. Jesus flipping tables. But let's start with these money changers, okay? What's their job? Why are they there? 
And lastly, why does Jesus respond to them in this way? Well, they are there, the best we can tell, in the outer courts to provide material animals for sacrifice and for worship. Someone brings money, pays them for an item to sacrifice and worship to God. Now, it's, it's a little unclear what bothers Jesus the most. I say both of these bother him, but I don't know what gets under his skin most. Maybe there's unfair exchange, or maybe it's just simply them being there. Either way, a shift has occurred inside the temple, and that shift that has occurred inside the temple is concerning for Jesus. You see, the purpose and intent of the temple, this, this, what it was intended to be used for, is actually being misused. And because of this misuse, because of this activity, it has become a place for sin to fester, a den, a hideout for robbers. Rather than a place for hearts to sincerely engage with God through prayer. That's what he says it is, a house of prayer. So the activity that Jesus rejects, the activity that he is exposing, it is hindering. It's defiling God's house, a house of prayer. See, that's the teaching associated with this event. Stop using God for sinful gain. Come to the temple to engage God and grow in intimacy. Come in faith, believing that God is here, that God is holy, that God is faithful. Come here and do as God has instructed. All the while believing that God does indeed keep his promises. Jesus instructs them very clearly, warns them very deeply, don't come here with a lackadaisical heart, unengaged. And certainly, don't you dare defile this place <laughs> where God dwells. Think for a minute about how hard-hearted these people have become. How much hard-heartedness is required to participate in activity that defiles God's place. Imagine where someone's heart is to throw aside his instruction because there are plenty of instructions in God's word in how to engage him. It is unthinkable for a person to throw aside God's instructions and to do whatever you want. You see, this event is beginning to show us something, and not only us, but those there, as we'll see next week, they start to catch on a little bit. 
You see, this event is to show just how far gone God's people are. But it's also to reveal just how much need they are. How much need that they have for a Savior. They can't be faithful to engage God in how God has said, and they've turned it into a hideout for robbers. Well, event two continues to expose the hearts of the religious elite. You see, Jesus takes time in the temple to heal the blind and lame. As he continues to do wonderful things, did you catch that? That's how the scriptures describe it. (laughs) That those who are most irritated are observing wonderful things that Jesus is doing. But yet it's not so wonderful to them. And as he continues to do these wonderful things, well, many, specifically children here in this text, they have that familiar course on their lips we saw last week. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, apparently this declaration in response to, let me just remind you, wonderful things. Well, this response, this praise, this familiar course irritates the chief priests and scribes. So they question Jesus. What an odd question. Do you hear what these are saying? This seems to be their issue. Do, do you, are you comprehending what they are saying? You see, the chief priests and the scribes who are so irritated by this wonderful things happening and a right response of the person doing these wonderful things, you see, they are well aware of the messianic claim that is being made by these little children. Let me make that a little bit plainer for you. You're like, messianic claim? Let me make that really clear. They, chief priests, scribes, the ones that are very irritated with this glorious response to wonderful things, they are aware that these children are saying that Jesus the man in front of them doing wonderful things, that Jesus is the one sent by God to save his people. He is the anointed one. That's what the claim is saying. It began last week on Sunday. For them, the day before, it began of a right declaration that the one we have been waiting for has come. He is the one. He's the man, if you will. You see, that's a lofty claim, isn't it? To attribute to this man this lofty understanding that he wrapped in him is all the fulfillment of God's promises, the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. You see, that's a very lofty claim that the religious ones don't want to give to Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. 
Why do they not want this? Well, he's uh, allowing the blame, uh, the blind and the lame to be healed in the temple. Don't do that here. Not only that, he's confronting people's sin. Not only that, but he's causing a stir. You know the stir is specifically excitement about what? God's promises have come in this man. Hosanna, the excitement that's being stirred, is directly connected that this man is the one who's come to save us, is the one who is anointed by God. Don't give it to him. With this declaration, hope is being stirred, at least in some. You see, these religious elite, these chief priests, these scribes, well, they want the children to stop. Of course they do. But they want something more. You see, they want Jesus to confess that he's not the one to receive that cry. This is why the question's phrased this way. Do, do, do you hear what they are saying? Are you going to accept those lofty claims? Anyone in their right mind would redirect and not receive that. They want Jesus to confess that he's not the one worthy to receive those cries. So Jesus responds with, yes. I'd like to just see him going, yeah, I hear him. Yeah. And then he just brilliantly, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? For you, that doesn't feel that brilliant, but let me just tell you, that's brilliant. See, Jesus is drawing these religious elites back to what we call, well, it's called Psalms, but it's called the Psalter to them, right? This is a very familiar book that would have been constantly used in their gathering times. He, he draws them to this familiar and helpful book that has guided God's people for a very long time, and he begins to show them the foolishness of their hearts. In essence, what he's saying is like, hey, though you don't want me to be who I am, sorry, I am he. Who all of God's promises culminate in, you should actually listen to the children. You see, their hearts had gotten so cold, so hard, so full of arrogance, they cannot see directly in front of them the obvious fulfillment of God's promises. Well, the children, the unlikely ones, rightly declare, while the more informed ones reject. The more informed ones are letting the house of prayer be a hideout for evil. The more informed ones are breeding. I kind of like that song. It's nice. The more informed ones who should be declaring praise are letting the house of prayer become a hideout for evil. 
And, and letting it be a hideout for evil is breeding greater unholiness and unfaithfulness. This is what they are doing, right? But the unlikely ones, the less informed ones, they cry out rightly who this man is. They perceive, they understand, they see it. They cry out because you cannot stop the work of God. Which leads to a very pointed teaching. And Jesus uses a prop here. And this is a very symbolic, very pointed teaching. This first scene begins to put on display the heart of those who should have seen. But it also puts on display and say, just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Christ will do all that he said he would do. Let's reread this next scene so we can kind of see it clearly. Verses 18 to 22. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. What is happening here? Well, the fig tree was one of the most important plants in the biblical era. It was widely, widely cultivated in their area. It had really sweet fruit and really big leaves. It actually made it a great symbol for God being in covenant with his people. You don't believe me? Well, here, here's how this symbol was often used. Favor, but it also was used for judgment. It was used for joy, prosperity, and in general, just the people of God, Israel. For an example, in describing the potential fruitfulness in Israel, here's what God says in Hosea 9.10, that he found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree. They were obedient. They were fruitful. Because of faithfulness, there was tremendous fruit. See, this is how it was used. And what Hosea is saying, here's what he means, that they, God's people, Israel, could indeed, they could actually be very, very fruitful by being continually faithful. Now, though that is true, well, this symbol also puts before the people of God and us this morning, there's also great potential for fruitlessness. The Old Testament actually speaks often about a barrenness of the fig tree that would come, you guessed it, in the disobedience of Israel. See the connection? Fruitful, obedience, faithful, unfruitful, disobedience, unfaithful. 
Here's how Jeremiah 8.13, it states that when God would come to gather his people, well, that's interesting. Here's what he would find. No figs on the fig tree. That's what he would find. Now, what does this mean? It means that he would search for faithful people, but find none. See above examples that we just looked at. Searching for faithful people, but finding none. In Micah 7, verses 1 to 4, Micah laments the loss of godliness. He laments disloyalty of God's people. Here's what he says. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. The fig tree has a very long-standing place in the biblical account. And, and more importantly, as a symbol of God's people and their relationship to God. When they are unfaithful, they are like the barren fig tree. When they are faithful... They are like the first fruits of the fig tree. Now, with that backdrop, I believe you can start to begin to see that perhaps there's a little bit more going on that Jesus clearly wants to communicate. It seems that his intent is pretty big here. You see, it's not about the fig tree, but rather what Israel God's people from the Old Testament had become. That's what this little moment is doing. See, one scholar put it really well when he said, Jesus uses a barren but leafy fig tree to illustrate how Israel had a showy religion that was of no value and was worthy of judgment because it bore no fruit in their lives. That's the point. They seem showy, but yet not godly. Jesus is exposing with really both of these things, but this is clearly saying what he is observing. He's exposing the hypocrisy, and it's going to get way deeper next week and more clear. But in these two scenes, he is exposing the hypocrisy that comes with showy, man-made religion. Outside looks good, but the inside is dark and barren. Which, interestingly enough, will get said plainly next week. This is why this leafy fig tree is to be cursed. It has leaves. And therefore should have figs beginning to grow, but Jesus finds no fruit. Leaves is all that is present in this fig tree, not fruit, no substance to it, just leaves. Brothers and sisters, and those visiting with us, Jesus is not being irrational, he's not hangry. And taking it out on the fig tree. He is saying much, much more. As we said earlier, he's using this moment 
a leafy fig tree, but no fruit to illustrate where God's people are this very moment. See examples above. They have a showy religion, but it was of no value. And what Jesus is hinting at and becoming very plain here that this way of living is worthy of judgment and will receive judgment. That's what's happening here. So what do they lack? If I were to ask you the emphasis of these stories, what do they lack? Faith. You see, the disciples, they marvel at the fig tree being withered. And they're kind of interested in that detail, and, and, and I get it. Like, hey, how'd you do that? <laughs> they're, they're taken back by the fact that the fig tree responded to Jesus, and it withered instantly. So when they ask Jesus, Jesus being the master teacher that he is, he gives them the real. And the most important part about God's people, about this barren fig tree, he is telling them that faith is essential to God's people. He understands that what he just observed in the temple and the mess that he is watching around town, all of that has occurred. They have become who they are because of a lack of of faith that has led to unfaithfulness in God's way. See above examples. Now, that's the point here. They lack faith. Faith, the, the unfaithfulness led to disobedience and has led to hard hearts. That seems to be what is happening and. Christ has come, and judgment is coming as well. Now, we know that they lack faith, and that's the point of this text, but can I just say for a moment, this text has been so misused, so misunderstood throughout the years. You see, the prayer of faith, because this is an odd turn. Hey, how, why did that tree wither? And he goes, hey, if you tell mountains to move, they'll move. What? I just wanted to know how the, how you do that. Do you have some Roundup? Did you spray it on it? Of course, they didn't have Roundup. That was meant to be humorous. But they're so intrigued by the fact that, but, but, this, but then he answers with a prayer of faith. Because the point is, he wants them to have deeper faith, and it's lacking, which has led to all the disobedience in the temple. But see, this prayer of faith in that context starts to make sense. But this prayer of faith that is called for here, you so it, it deals with trust and belief in God. That's what it deals with. But I think, let me just pastorally for a second address a misuse of this text. I've encountered it too much that I feel like it's wise for us to just perhaps state the obvious, but maybe not so obvious. Let us not think that God is obligated to do whatever we want if we just want it bad enough. That's, that is not the point of this text. The point of this text is not to say, 
that if God does not answer your prayer, then you lacked faith. You see, with that one thought, there has been mountains of chains and burdens placed upon people from religious institutions that say, if you would only have enough faith, then God would heal so and so. There's a massive amount of guilt heaped upon an individual with that terrible theology because that's not the point of this text. It is overwhelming and it is just flat out wrong. It takes years to undo what is done with that very destructive theology. It is wrong and it's not sound doctrine. You see, if we really desire the thing prayed for, it does not mean that it will be given to us. But what Jesus is saying here is that there should be no doubt that God himself is capable of whatever we are asking. Pray as one who actually believes that the one listening is all-powerful. But pray as one who believes that the one listening is also all-wise. And who is good beyond measure. Pray as one who believes that God can do. He is all-powerful, but also pray believing that he will do what is best. He will move and do what is for our good. But Jesus is challenging us. Pray as one who has deep belief that God can indeed move. Pray as one who believes that whatever God gives, whatever his answer is, it is what is best for you. Here's a better understanding of what Jesus is saying. Listen as I read these scriptures. I think they're instructive. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. So here's a hint to the Jesus' teaching. Faith, complete trust. Here the scripture is saying that one can have all the faith in the world, but yet still be in need of greater heart work. So in the end, God the Father is a better, more wise determiner of answering a prayer. But it all starts with faith. Here's a test. All knowledge, all faith to remove mountains, what Jesus is calling for, but yet they still need more maturity. They still need more work of God in their heart. So it is wise for us to pray, believing he can do it, but he'll do what is best. And I actually need him to do what is best. But brothers and sisters, it all starts with faith. We can't get around it. James 1 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, this teaching of Jesus to his disciples about this withered fig tree is intended to spur them towards faithfulness in all they do and pray. Not flashy, showy, leafy 
actions, but a prayer believing that God can do whatever he wants and God will do whatever is best for you. He means that a surety in the things of God. He means that there is a surety in his abilities to work, the ability to move and do the impossible. He's saying that is essential. That is crucial to God's people. So pray as a people who trust God more than ourselves. You see, this teaching, this withering, if you will, is to weed out hypocrisy. But it also is to generate deep trust upon Jesus. Deep belief that he is indeed our Hosanna. He's the one who saves us. It's clear here that faith produces fruit. That's that's the clear implication Jesus is drawing out. But he also is saying on the other side that a lack of faith produces hard-heartedness. A lack of faith produces a type of fruit, but a fruit that misses all that God is doing in front of them. A fruit that causes them to take the glorious place of God's presence and turn it into a hideout for evil. You see, a lack of faith produces stuff. Oh, it has a result. And I think we could call it most clearly a hard-heartedness, no longer sensitive to the things of God. That as Jesus enters his last week of his life, this is the response. Do you hear what those foolish kids are saying? Are you going to receive that? Their hearts are so cold to the things of God. Why is faith so essential? Because it makes our heart remain sensitive to the things of the Lord. It makes our heart uh, able to be molded and shaped by the things of God. You see, what's going to continually be exposed in uh, in next week specifically, it's going to be hearts full of stubbornness. It gets really directed. The seven woes come up in the next week. It gets very specific, but here's the beginning stages of saying, hey, your your, your heart is far, and it's due to a lack of faith. So their hearts are going to continually be exposed. But what's crazy is that their hearts are so full of stubbornness, but yet they've adorned the external with a lot of leafy actions. To continue the analogy, leafy actions. The fruit of God's faithfulness is right in front of them. (laughs) What a weird moment. The fruit of God's faithfulness is right in front of them, and they can't see it. And it seems the reason why they can't see it is a messed up faith 
They should have faith that can move mountains, but they've developed a faith that can't push a pebble. Because if they had strong faith, their actions in the temple, their prayers in the temple would be full of belief that God exists. And because he exists, let's do what he's told us to do in here. And if God is good, then we will continue to be faithful when it seems there is no hope coming. You see, if they had a strong faith to move mountains rather than a faith that can't push a pebble, you see, they, if they had that faith, well, the temple would not be a hideout for evil. I mean, just, just that thought that it was a place that, that sin could fester and grow. <laughs> That's wild. Brothers and sisters, God's people without faith is like a leafy fig tree with no fruit. Maybe we could say useless. We can certainly say confusing. Just terribly confusing. We see a group of people proclaiming in leafy actions, we love Jesus. But our hearts are not full of trust and belief in all of it. That's confusing. It's so confusing that it is just hard upon a people of God. People without faith have no fruit. What does that mean? Well, they lack joy, peace, patience, kindness. You want to keep the phrase going? Anytime we think of fruit, it's always great to think of the fruits of the Spirit. This morning, I think it's wise for me to ask, and easy for me to ask, based upon this text. Where's your faith this morning? What's your heart most trust this morning? Why do I say that? Because the warnings are here. Be aware. Whatever you trust either leads to greater fruitfulness or a hard-heartedness to the things of God. It's not surprising to Jesus that he has responded this way. He is on the scene because the people you and I need, one, to live in full faith, walking in our shoes in a way that receives upon himself what you and I cannot endure. But this morning, could you be warned? Where is your heart? If there's seeds of bitterness, seeds of frustration, seeds of lack of trust, do not delay. Let us lay that before our Savior this morning, asking for him to work, because the end result is hard-heartedness. If you're visiting with us and you don't know the glories of Christ, would you please grab someone? The man that enters in to Jerusalem is indeed our Savior who we love. 
And we ask that this morning, if you have questions, grab someone. Talk all day about him. He's just that glorious. This morning, this text reminds us that faith produces fruit, but a lack of faith produces hard hardness. Where is your faith? Let's pray. Father God, what an incredible text that we just looked at for a few moments. Perhaps for some it's hard to hear the truth being taught here because we find ourselves much like the barren fig tree. I pray what this morning would do, it would spur us on, it would evoke in us a willingness to examine, a willingness to come to you with all of our doubts and fears and questions believing that you will receive them and you will answer well. Father, help us to be a people defined by our trust and belief in you. Father, we ask that if there are some among us who don't know you, that you would continue to soften their hearts, that they might grab someone and talk. Lord, it is in your holy and precious name we pray this morning. Amen.